and Pastor Michael, if you could turn to page <clears throat> four in your bulletin, we're doing a sermon series in the Gospel of John. We're going systematically verse by verse. And uh, before we dive in, I want to make two minor revisions to what's in your bulletin. First, the title. You can just cross that out if you keep notes. Um, the new title is The Son Obeys the Father. And then the second revision is the text. Um, we're going to read John chapter 12. What's printed there for you is 27 through 33. But actually, I'm just going to read 27 through 30. Because um, verse 31 through 33, I realize more properly fits in with the next passage, which we're going to look at um, next week. I'm going to preach on next week on unbelief. So with that in mind, let me read to you starting in verse 27. Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. This is the word of God. So, I want to begin like this. Um, One of my all-time favorite movies is The Lord of the Rings. And um, in the movie, there's this group of travelers. They're called the the Fellowship of the Ring, right? They're on this um, great quest, and they're traveling through Middle-earth. And on their journey, they find that the way forward has been blocked. Every way, um, every way they can make progress has been hindered so that they are forced, against all caution, to go down into the mines of Moria. And the mines of Moria is this vast network and maze of tunnels and passageways and hidden chambers which would take many lifetimes to explore. And as they're traveling through the mines of Moria, um, they come to, there's this great scene where they come into this great hall. And Gandalf the wizard, he says, let me risk a little more light. And as the light from his staff stretches out into that chamber, they realize that they are in an almost unimaginable space more vast and more terrible than they could have ever imagined with these enormous stone columns stretching up above them and stretching out as far as the eye can see. And then the camera pans in on their faces and you see their mouths agape. They're filled with wonder and awe and reverence. I want you to know that our text today these four seemingly short verses is like that scene. The Gospel of John is one of the greatest, it is one of the most profound books in the Bible, and it would take many lifetimes to explore all of its riches, to go down all of its passageways. But I want you to know that in these four verses, we have come to the depths. 
we have come into, as it were, this great hall. And we are permitted to peer into eternity and to behold its wonders. And I believe herein lies the meaning of the universe. In fact, I was um, tempted to give that as the name of the sermon, the meaning of the universe, but modesty and restraint counseled me otherwise. But I want you to know that's the grandeur of this. That's the scale that we're looking at. And I believe that the key to this passage, to understanding this passage, is verse 30. In verse 30, Jesus says, This voice has come... For your sake, not mine. This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now, what is this voice? It is the voice of the Father. And in fact, did you know that in the Gospel of John, this is the only time that we hear God the Father speaking. It's the only place in the whole Gospel where we, listen, where we can hear the voice of the Father Speaking, and therefore, do you see what is going on? We are listening into this dialogue between the Father and the Son. We are listening to what theologians call the intra-Trinitarian communication, this conversation that is going on inside of the Trinity And Jesus says, this is for your sake. This is for your sake. What does he mean by that? Do you think, oh mere human, that you can just listen into this conversation? That you just happen to overhear the persons of the Trinity speaking to one another? And do you think you could even understand it if you did? The crowds respond. They said it sounded like the sound of thunder. It sounded like the voice of angels. And so the answer is no. Because God dwells in unapproachable majesty. He is infinitely high. He is infinitely above us. We cannot ascend up to him. But in this passage, Jesus takes us by the hand. And he brings us into his home, so to speak, into the home of God. It would be sort of like if Christina and I were to invite one of you to come and to stay with us, to live with us for a time, so that you can listen to us talking together in the kitchen. You could hear our most intimate conversations. That's what's going on here. Jesus is lifting the veil, and he's showing us the domestic life of God. He's bringing us into this intimate conversation that is happening within God. He's showing us the inner life of God. And therefore, I want you to know we are treading on holy ground. We are peering into eternity itself because we are looking at the very nature of God. And because we are looking at the very nature of God, we are looking at the very structure of reality itself. Because before God created the universe, before the material universe ever existed, before the Big Bang, for eons and eons of eternity, the Father and the Son 
were speaking to one another. The Father and the Son were conversing and communicating with each other. It's breathtaking. Now, before we look at this, we need to do first a little bit of preparatory work. And so I want to walk you through the doctrine of the Trinity in the Gospel of John. I'm going to give you a little bit of a primer here. And I want you to know that the Gospel of John has the most sustained, the most fulsome teaching on the Trinity. It's one of the chief reasons why I wanted to preach through the Gospel of John. And before I begin, I, I want to share with you how inadequate to the task I feel. I feel like a little child. I feel like a deaf and mute person trying to communicate by gesturing with my hands to describe what I, could, what I myself could only barely perceive. And I, and I want you to see how beautiful the Trinity is. I want you to see how life-giving and how life-transformative it is. And so we're going to do a little bit of spade work. And I want, to, I want you to bear with me because there are, there are many layers to this. And um, I've organized it into four points, four short points. And then I'm going to make some concluding remarks. And then we're going to dive into our passage. Okay, so that's the roadmap. So here are the four points. Point number one, in the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John shows us that, listen to me, God is a father loving his son. God is a father loving his son. John 3.35, Jesus says, the father loves the son. John 17, verse 24, Jesus prays, you have loved me before the foundation of the world. That is who God is. From all of eternity, God is a father loving his son. And perhaps the most breathtaking image of this is John 1.18. John 1.18, Jesus says, the son is in the bosom of the father. Do you know what the bosom is? The bosom is the breast. The bosom is the, the, the chest area. And so the, um, the, uh, the imagery here is of the Son, the Divine Son, laying down His head on the bosom of His Father. It's an absolute uh, amazing picture of intimacy and tenderness. This is who God is. God is a Father loving and adoring His Son. Number two, point number two, God is a Son obeying His Father. John 14, verse 31, Jesus says, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Many of you know that I'm a father and I have two boys. And I want you to know my two boys are good boys. They are good boys. And I know that they love me. But sometimes, they disobey me. And sometimes, even when they do obey, they obey in a grudging manner, they obey with reluctance, they obey with many grumblings and complaints. And i got to tell you, in those moments, I don't feel very loved by them. 
Because like all human beings, their love is imperfect, just as my love for them is imperfect. But listen, the divine son loves his father with a perfect love. And his obedience is a perfect obedience. It is never slacking, never half-hearted, always full of joy and eagerness. And when the son obeys, he never interposes his own will, but only the will of the father. John 6.38, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So that's the second point. God is a son obeying his father with all of his strength and all of his joy. Third point. God is a father teaching his son. I know that sounds a little strange, but you have to remember this, that the persons of the Trinity are co-eternal. There is no beginning. There is no end. And therefore, the Son cannot learn anything new because He already knows all things, because He is God. And yet, and yet, the Son is learning from the Father from all of eternity. Listen to John 5, verses 19 through 20. Jesus says, The Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. So here's the imagery. The imagery is the son is working alongside of his father in his shop. Right? Imagine, you know, a son um, apprenticing under his father, learning his father's craft. And so the imagery here is the son is intently watching his father. And the father is patiently teaching his son. And whatever the father does, the son does likewise. And as the son succeeds in his father's business, the father is just beaming with pride and joy. And the son feels his father's pleasure. That's the imagery of the triune God. All that the son knows, he has learned from the father. It's mind-bending. Fourth point. God is a father sending out his son to do his will. John 8, 28 and 29. Listen to this. Jesus says, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying that the Father has a plan. And the plan is the redemption of humanity from sin. And so in accordance with this plan, the Father sends forth His Son. And then in response, the Son willingly and joyfully obeys. And He goes. And He fulfills exactly the will of the Father because He loves His Father. And so those are the four points. And in those four points, we have a portrait of God. Some of you are saying, what about the Holy Spirit? 
we'll get there. Let's wait until Jesus himself introduces the Spirit in John chapter 14. And then 14 through 17 is going to be all about the Spirit. But I want you to see here, this is the domestic life of God. And we have, br- we have been brought, so to speak, into his home. This is who God is in himself. Could we have ever imagined it? This is the inner workings of the Trinity. And so what do we learn here? What do we learn here? I think for many of us, even for those of us who have been brought up in the church all of our lives, we have this image of God. We imagine him as this solitary being, this lonely figure high up in the heavens. But what does the Gospel of John tell us? He tells us that God is a family. God is a family where every member is just pouring out love to each other. And therefore, the essence of God is love. 1 John 4.8, the apostle says, God is love. Which is the strongest way that you could put it. Because love is not just what God does. Love is who God is. God is a father loving and adoring his son. God is a son loving and serving his father. That's who God is. And what does that mean for us? It means everything. Because remember, we were created in the image of God. We were created to be like Him. And then if we are like the triune God, then what does that mean for the way that we live? Here's what it means. Here's what it has to mean. It means that love is more important than money. It's getting real now. It means that relationships are more important than success and accomplishments. Because before the universe ever existed, for eons and eons of eternity, God was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, loving one another, serving and caring for one another. That is who God is, and therefore that is the essence of ultimate reality. And if you live your life in contradiction to that, then you're going to experience breakdown. You're going to experience death. Because you're going against the fundamental grain of the universe. You're violating the fundamental fabric of the universe. Do you see how powerful this doctrine is? You see, only Christianity can say this, because only Christianity has the Trinity Only Christianity says that love, relationship, friendship is the very essence of God. All right, now we're ready to dive into our passage. And I'm just going to focus on two verses, 27 and 28, and I'm going to split this up into two parts. This is why I didn't write an outline, it's... It's uh, points within points within points. Um, so I'm going to split it into two parts. First, I'm going to give you the setup, which is we're going to look at the first half of verse 27, and then we're going to look at the dialogue. Okay? 
So first the setup, verse 27. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, now is my soul troubled. The word trouble that is, uh, uh, the word that is uh, translated troubled there is the Greek word terasso. Terasso means deep distress and anxiety. It's a very strong word. And what is going on here is that in this moment, Jesus has this clear vision of his impending death on the cross. It's very similar to that passage in the Garden of Gethsemane in the other three Gospels. Um, In fact, uh, the Gospel of John does not include that scene. So this is John's equivalent of that scene where Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you remember, and he's overcome with dread. In fact, it's so intense, Luke tells us that mixed in with his sweat were drops of blood. And so what's going on here in verse 27 is Jesus looks straight into the bowels of hell and he recoils with horror and anguish. And let me add this. It is only when you understand the doctrine of the Trinity that you can begin to appreciate the ultimate cost of what he was facing. Because remember, from all of eternity, the Son was in the bosom of the Father. But on the cross, he was cast out. On the cross, he experienced cosmic rejection and wrath to infinite depths, to an infinite degree that we will never even begin to understand. But why is this important? Why, what are we supposed to gain from this? And here is the point. Here's the point. Jesus is talking about the cost of obedience. He's talking about the costliness of obedience. Because what does it mean to obey the Father? And what Jesus is showing us is that obedience is not some breezy, uninvolved thing, but it is blood. It is sweat and tears and agony. This is why Jesus, in the previous passage, if you remember, he says, you have to hate your life. That's the actual word that he uses. He says, you have to hate your life. It's a very violent word, right? Because do you enjoy comfort? Do you enjoy security? Do you want to be happy? These are the normal things that everybody desires. But Jesus says, if you follow me, if you want to obey the Father, you have to deny yourself and you have to take up the cross because in this life, obedience feels so often like death. Like death. I want to share with you a story. Several years ago, I read a book by Wes Hill called Washed and Waiting. And in the book, Wes Hill says that even as a young child, he was always strangely drawn to other males in a vague and confusing way. And then he discovered in himself what he describes as strong, steady, unremitting, exclusive, same-sex attractions. Now, Wes Hill grew up in a devout Christian home, and so this realization came upon him with horror. And he desperately tried to fix the problem. He desperately tried to make himself straight. And so he would steal away with his mother's lingerie catalogs, his his face flushed with embarrassment, 
he would um, stare at the pictures. He would look and look at the women in the catalog trying to induce arousal, trying to induce sexual attraction, but he could not. And so he dare not tell anyone. He called it his inconsolable secret. And so his young life was full of loneliness, confusion, fear, fear of discovery, fear of rejection. And he says that he was just covered in shame because he felt like this meant he was irredeemable. It meant that he was beyond love, beyond all hope. And it reached a crisis point in college. He was at the wedding of a friend, and um, late in the evening, he was dancing with a female friend of his, and he says she was dressed in this beautiful dress. She looked stunning. And yet, he says, he felt no attraction, no desire. And he says in that moment, he felt this profound sadness because he realized he would never get to experience the deep oneness of marriage. But why should that be? Why should the door to sexual fulfillment be closed only to him? And so he threw himself into the library. He was a student at uh, Wheaton College, which is a Christian uh, school, and so he says he checked out all the books they had on this subject, and he gave particular attention to what is called uh, the revisionist literature, which affirms homosexuality as fully compatible with Christianity. And so he says he read, and he read, and he read, and he says he was searching for the possibility of happiness. But ultimately, he says, the arguments rang hollow. And it became so clear to him, after he had investigated this matter so thoroughly, God's call to faithfulness and sexual holiness. And so he was faced with this stark choice to either obey God and to face a lifetime of celibacy and loneliness, which he says felt like a death sentence to him, or to openly disobey God to go against his conscience and pursue his own happiness in homosexual relationships. And I want to tell you, it is one of the most beautiful books I've ever read. And there are several passages that brought me to tears because he's so open about his struggles, his doubts, his fears. And he talks about you know, coming out to his Christian friends and finding encouragement there. And he talks about how in a culture that celebrates sexual fulfillment, he made the decision of obedience and celibacy, and so he surrendered his life to God. But he says that he constantly struggles with loneliness. And he's very raw and very open about this. And I want to read to you a passage. Listen to this. West Hill writes, I know that the love of God is better than any human love. But that doesn't change the fact that I feel in the deepest parts of who I am that I am wired for human love. I want to be married. And the longing isn't mainly for sex, 
since sex with a woman seems impossible at this point, it is mainly for the day-to-day small kind of intimacy where you wake up next to a person you've pledged your life to, and then you brush your teeth together, you read a book in the same room without necessarily talking to each other, you share each other's small joys and heartaches. And then he writes this. One of my married friends once told me she delights to wake up in the night and to feel her husband's foot just a few inches from hers in their bed. It is the loss of that small kind of intimacy in my life that feels devastating. It is hard for me to think about living without this. Yes, I have dear friends, several who are so precious to me, I truly do believe I would give my life for them. And one of my closest friends is another single guy about my age, but I know that things will change. He will move away or get married, and the kind of relationship we have will change. We will still be friends, hopefully, but it will not be like a marriage. And it hurts my heart to think that that is so. I want you to know that when Jesus says, now is my soul troubled, he understood in the deepest way the pain and anguish of West Hill and everyone in this room. Because everyone, virtually everyone in this room is faced with a struggle that feels overwhelming. I've spoken to so many of you and some of you feel like you're trapped in this loveless marriage without any hope of healing. Some of you feel like you're stuck, your your life is just stalled and the future seems unbearably bleak. You just want to give up. You want to give up on your faith. You want to give up on God. And in that context, how do you obey? How do you obey God when obedience feels like death? How do you surrender to Him when surrender feels like the evisceration of your soul? I believe the answer lies inside of this intra-Trinitarian dialogue that we see in verses 27 and 28. And I want to read it to you again, and let us listen this time with fresh ears, fresh eyes. Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. Let me make four quick observations here. Observation number one. I want you to notice this is a, this is a son speaking to his father. This is a son speaking to his father. There is nothing sweeter to me as a father than one of my boys running to me and saying, Daddy, Daddy, 
and with hurt in his eyes, pouring out his pains. And so I want you to notice the intimacy, the emotional warmth behind these words. This is a son speaking to his father. Secondly, notice what Jesus says. He says, Father, glorify your name. Now, what does it mean to glorify? To glorify is to honor, to give praise. It means to to lift up and to exalt. And I want you to notice that the Son does not seek His own glory, but the glory of the Father. He wants His Father to receive praise. He wants His Father to be recognized and honored. John 8.49, Jesus says... I do not seek my own glory, but I honor my Father. Jesus said, this is for this purpose I have come, not to seek my own interest, but to lay down my life for the Father, to glorify the Father. This is the Son glorifying the Father. Third point, notice that the Father immediately and without hesitation grants the request of His Son Every good father delights to give good things to his son. John 3.35, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. The father delights to give gifts to his son. Fourth, notice that when the father says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again, what does he mean? This is very important. Listen to me. How does the father glorify His name? The answer is, He glorifies His name through His Son. John 5.23 The Father has given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. You see, the Father is exalted, not independent of His Son, not at the expense of His Son, but only and exclusively through His Son. So that Jesus can say in John 17, verse 24, You have given Me glory because You love Me. So that the Father has put His very own glory in His Son, so that when the Son is glorified, when the Son is exalted, the Father is glorified. Because he loves his son. He wants his son to be honored. He wants his son to be exalted. What do we learn here? We learn the father and the son. And they're each seeking not their own glory, but the glory of the other. We see each person of the Trinity serving, loving, delighting, and praising one another. We see the radical other-orientedness of God. We see the absolute other-centeredness of God. Because at the heart of God is servanthood. Because why? God is love. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, love seeks not its own. And it all comes to a climax on the cross. Do you understand why did Jesus go to the cross? Because it was the will of his Father. And by submitting, 
by obeying the Father, his Father may be glorified. So that he went to the cross, you know why? Because he's the Son. And therefore, Jesus' sonship comes to its fullest expression. It comes to its highest manifestation on the cross. So that the cross is not just this response in time to human rebellion and to the fall. Don't you understand? The cross comes from God himself, from this inner workings of the Trinity. It comes from the Son, from all of eternity, obeying and submitting his life to the Father. And why does the Father send his Son to the cross? It is so that his Son might be glorified, might be lifted up. Jesus says, uh, the Son of Man is to be lifted up on the cross so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the gospel. The gospel is the Father sending us His Son because He loves His Son. And the gospel is the Son submitting and obeying the Father by going to the cross because He loves the Father. That's the gospel. The gospel in a thumbnail is the father loving his son. It's the son loving his father. That's the gospel. It comes from within the Trinity itself. Some of you are saying, well, that's interesting. Never heard the gospel in those terms. But how does that help us? How does that help us? My dear friends, don't you know who you are? In Christ, you are all sons of God. Don't you know that the very thing that Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross for us is to make us sons of God? Listen to Romans 8.29. Paul writes, For those whom God foreknew, that's you and I, He is also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son that He, that's Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. That's us. Jesus Christ is our elder brother. Or listen to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. Christ is not ashamed to call them brothers. Again, that's us saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So here is the gospel. The gospel is Jesus Christ, our elder brother, who has come to earth to take our hand and to bring us into his family. I have two sons, Judah and Noah. Judah is two and a half years older than Noah. And I want you to know that when Noah was born, when Noah came into the family, Judah was so happy. So excited. Every day, he would play with Noah. He would talk with Noah. And to this day, I always see Judah wrap his arms around Noah. Because Judah is like twice Noah's height, right? He he would always wrap his arms around Noah and he would say, Noah, listen to me. Noah, listen to me. 
and he would teach Noah, and he would instruct Noah, because that's what older brothers do. I want you to know that in this passage, remember Jesus says, this voice is for your sake, not mine. So in this passage, Jesus is wrapping his arms around our shoulder, and he is showing us what it means to be a son. He's showing us how to live in his family. And I want to close by reading to you Romans 8, 16 through 17. Listen to this. Paul writes, You have received the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about all about the Spirit in the next coming weeks, okay? I'm so excited. But you have received the Spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And what does the Spirit do? Listen to this. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. You see, we have received adoption as sons. And God is a good father. He doesn't treat his adopted sons any differently than his natural born son. And so he loves you and I, his adopted sons. He loves us just as he loves his unique son. And as a son, he disciplines us. And we are now in his family. And I want you to know that we will never, never exhaust the riches, and the beauty and the depths of this. All of eternity, we will explore this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is far too high and great for us poor, weak sinful, ignorant human beings to grasp that we are fellow heirs with Christ and we are sons of God by the spirit of adoption. How marvelous that we should be brought into the eternal love of the Trinity and made partakers of the glory to come. Give us now the strength, the conviction to live as sons, not as slaves. In the name of Jesus Christ, the divine Son, we pray. Amen.